Hello and welcome to this edition of the Infosys Knowledge Institute AI podcast, the AI Interrogator. I'm Kate Bevan of the Infosys Knowledge Institute and my guest today is Lillian Edwards, who's a Professor of Law, Information and Society at Newcastle University. And Lillian is also very much my go-to expert on everything to do with tech regulation. So Lillian, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted. Let's make a start by asking, is the EU's approach to AI regulation the best game in town? Yeah, I think it is at the moment. Some people would say it's the only game in town, but they'd be wrong. It's the most well-worked out, most comprehensive, legal as opposed to ethical approach to regulating AI, whatever AI means. And a lot of people don't know this, that China is very, very ahead of the game here as well. China has got three pieces of legislation out already, um, at least two of which are in force, I think, and three complete, which regulate generative AI, synthetic AI, and recommended systems. But explicitly, they're only trying to regulate systems that operate in China, whereas the European approach is much more extraterritorial, much more like the GDPR, and they really are aiming to be the gold standard model for the world. You know, that's what they've said in all their various speeches. There's a lot of criticisms in that it's kind of based on a product safety model, you know, which the EU has a lot of experience with already. That says like, if you manufacture a dishwasher and you sell it or import it into the European market, then you must comply with certain rules to make that dishwasher safe, essentially. And if you do, you get a nice CE mark and you can circulate it through Europe. And this is kind of taking the same approach to certain AI systems, particularly high-risk systems. So what do you mean by high-risk? High-risk systems are really the main target of the AI Act. And you might be surprised to find out that they are written down in a list and systems are designated as high risk according to their intended uses. So there's a list, it's in Annex 3, and it's systems that are intended to be used, say, to assess whether you get credit, say, to assess if you get insurance, say, to manage your workplace performance. So it covers education. It covers, interestingly, a lot of high-stakes public sector functions like giving out welfare benefits or dealing with your tax affairs or deciding if you get through a smart immigration checkpoint or deciding in court, perhaps, if you get sent to jail or for how long do you get bail. So these kind of sentencing support systems, which were very controversial a few years back because um, a lot of evidence showed that they were very biased, particularly towards black people. There's been a lot of evidence in various countries that AI face recognition systems basically recognize black people less well than white people because they draw on a training set that's populated from the internet and there are more pictures of wealthy white people on the internet than there are poor black people. And in fact, another part of the AI Act, which is not about high risk, is called unacceptable risk. So this is like the top level of the AI Act. Says there are some AI systems that are just so bad, so bad for society really, bad for human rights, that they shouldn't be allowed at all. 
And this is one of the most politically sensitive parts of the AI app because the main example there is indeed face recognition systems used by the police in public areas. And the question is, should they be banned in Europe? But then, you know, I'm thinking also about the way um, China uses facial recognition and AI, particularly to oppress some of its minority populations. And you're having through EU-wide regulation is fantastic. What does that mean for the rest of the world? How are we able to export our values to other countries? Well, I think the EU is explicitly trying to export its values to other countries, certainly within the high-risk rules. So you're going to have to take steps to make sure that your training set's bare, that it's representational, that it's not full of mistakes, that you've labelled perhaps correctly, that your data hasn't been poisoned, that you have a degree of transparency and risk mitigation. There's a long list of things you're going to have to say you've done, all of which are pretty much standard best practice, okay? But that only matters to you if you're outside the EU, if you're trying to sell or move into the European market. If it's the other way around, for example, if it's a European producer trying to sell into China, then you don't care. So although the European jurisdiction grab is quite big, you know, this extraterritorial grab, it certainly won't affect, I think, say how the Chinese government operates unless they are trying to sell their tech into Europe, which seems a bit unlikely. And also we keep banning them from doing that because we're worried about security. So if we're still thinking about the EU regulation being a pretty good starting point, a pretty good standard, what's going to screw up the idea of useful global regulation? I wrote down a list, actually, and it gets longer and longer, unfortunately, as opposed to my usual list of the benefits of the EU regime. It's very depressing. The first one we've actually already stumbled onto, really, which is is global regulatory competition and arbitrage. So at one point, you know, it looked like it was only the EU. The EU were ahead, and then we noticed that China were doing something. And now everyone is talking about it, right? I mean, I'm going out to Australia soon. They are talking about a new privacy law, possibly a new AI law, maybe an APEC law, who knows? So there's going to be a lot of new rules coming out about AI governance and how are they going to compete with each other? So it's a little bit like a reprise of maybe the millennium when we saw a lot of different countries bringing out rules about how to deal with platforms, online platforms. And it took quite a while for that to settle down. And indeed, has it settled down? You know, because we're still in the middle of the data transfer wars where we've been stuck for how long? At least 10 years, maybe 15 years? We're going to have reprises of the data transfer wars, the safe harbor wars in terms of AI arbitrage, I am absolutely sure. But another kind of key point, which is intrinsic in the discussion about the EU regime, is how on earth do you enforce these nice sanding rules, which again is a perennial chestnut with any kind of internet regulation, let alone global transnational cross-border regulation. So the heartland of the EU regime, as I've just said, is the high-risk regime, which looks really nice. I remember reading through it when it came out going, wow, this is amazing, you know. And then you sort of get to the end. Well, you don't because it's not really obvious. And you discover that it's a self-regulatory regime. Almost all the providers, virtually all, will be marking their own homework, will be saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we've done all this, we've done all this, we've ticked it off, we've mitigated all our risks, look, we've written it all down, etc., etc. But nobody will be checking it until someone gets hurt, very largely. 
at which point we get interesting things happening actually with AI liability. Yeah, the, re the response to that is, you know, what could possibly go wrong if they're all marking their own homework? <laughs> well, we've only got 20, what, 30 years of privacy regulation to, <laughs> to consult on that. I mean, the whole history of privacy seal regulation, yeah, yeah. is just like self-regulation doesn't work. So where do you think the pitfalls are going to be, particularly with these sort of marking their own homework? Where's it going to go wrong? So I do think that most of the big companies, there may be some exceptions, will probably make a good faith effort to obey these rules. And there are some reasons why they might, because when the whole point of the EU Act is to get it right from the beginning, as opposed to waiting for everything to go horribly wrong, you try and make a dishwasher at the start that doesn't blow up. But if you take an AI system and you don't obey the rules, and somehow down the line, something does go horribly wrong and you discover that it's stopping 20% of black people from getting places at Harvard or something like that, or that it's in an autonomous vehicle. There's a good example that really does blow up or really does run over people. Then, again, there's a, quite a high chance, particularly in Europe, that that failure to mark your own homework properly would get taken into account in your liability. Right, that's explicitly how the EU is now setting it up. And that's very clever, I think. So you've got a bit of stick and carrot. One of the things I've always thought about some of the stuff we've done, particularly with you know, things like social media moderation, is we've let it run away from us and then we've been playing catch up with how to make it better. And certainly my feeling of the people I've been talking to, including you, but also some of the people with an emphasis and other people externally, that feels like there's a really strong effort not just in the EU, but across certainly the US and in the UK and in Canada and other sort of Western places to be out in front of it this time and to do our best to mitigate for the known possibilities of it blowing up. Yeah, I think that is true. This is where I stop being Jiminy Cricket, though. It looks sort of sad and worried because a number of things are happening. There is always the danger, particularly with AI, where everything as I always say, whatever AI is, everything seems to change about every five minutes at the moment, that your carefully prepared regulation just falls apart because there's some big technical change. And normally I would say nothing that dramatic actually happens very often. Existing principles cover it. But actually we have this great worked example, which is that, you know, we spent years uh, having ethics committees and things working on the AI Act and then they get so far with the progress and then along comes generative AI, along comes ChatGPT and Dali and all the rest of them. And they go, oh my God. We didn't include this in our regime because our regime, as I said before, is aimed at systems that have a particular high risk intended use, yeah? And the whole point of generative AI systems is they have no one intended use. So it was like, oh my God, what are we going to do? And I think there is that danger, even though we're trying quite hard to be ahead of the game this time. I think the other danger, which is being very cynical, is that what do we mean by being ahead of the game in terms of governance? Do we mean actual hard mandatory regulation, which is what the EU is? to some extent going for, right? Which you might argue is bad for innovation and bad for progress, but good for society and good for human values. Many people claim that's a false dichotomy, but I just throw it there, right? Or do we go for a much softer, more ethical 
more self-regulatory approach in which we still might look like we're thinking about the future and getting ahead on AI, and yet we're not really doing anything very much. And it could be argued that some countries, not that far from where I'm sitting, are thinking about that approach. So I'm thinking particularly about the issue of copyright, which has been you know, quite a big storm that's blown up recently, where creators of works from music to books to paintings to visual work are up in arms about the fact that their work has been scraped up into this vast seething cauldron of data and used to create generative AI outputs. Um, I completely understand how they feel violated, but I'm not a lawyer, obviously, but I can't see how they win any battles on this one. What's your take, Lillian? As to whether they'll win anything, I think in the end, the market's going to solve this one. I've been saying this quite a lot. I think other problems are actually more insuperable. Um, what we're already seeing is a number of devices happening in the market, notably opt-outs. Now, this is clunky, obviously. If you're a small artist, if you're a small sculptor, are you going to know to opt out? Are you have ever going to have heard about it? But I think that is going to be a useful tool. It's a bit like what we have with Google right now, where you can put no into your robots.txt and then Google doesn't spider you. The problem with Gen AI is that's already emerging, is that there are a lot of crawlers out there. And do you know even about one crawler, let alone dozens? So in a way, we're back at the do not track problem. What we'd really love, I think, artists would love, would be a generic do not track, do not copy me, do not bot me, do not ingest me. But what are the chances of getting it? You know, again, given that a lot of these crawlers are from organizations based in the US, which historically hasn't been keen on this kind of regulation. They are moving. The US is definitely moving, I think, within foreseeable future to some kind of more stringent privacy regime. But this is even beyond a privacy regime. This is actually impeding the business models of their, you know, what do you call it? Unicorns, whatever. Yeah, it feels like a sort of mashup of privacy and copyright and moral rights and ownership that's a whole new area particularly thinking of the authors who've been up in arms recently saying hang on my book's in this database I didn't give you consent to do that but do they even need to be asked for consent because the outputs aren't derivative of their work so it's it's a really tricky one I think and this is the one I'm really keeping an eye on. Mm. It's very tricky and very complex. I think you can separate the two out. It's interesting, the Chinese thing otherwise, because I had a Chinese student doing a dissertation on it, it was fascinating. You can separate the question of whether your stuff was copied without your permission from the question of whether you own the output. And the first one often looks like a really open and shut case, at least to European eyes. Whereas the second, yeah, I think the chances of winning on it being a derivative work are pretty low because, yeah, it's just that as your work was a tiny part of what went into the giant gludge, mudge, whatever you call it. And it's really hard to necessarily prove that what came out the other end was really consequentially related to your work. Even the one or two times that it looks really, really like it are very, very hard to capture. But yeah, the initial copying 
Why not? I think that's quite an easy one. But the problem is in the US, you've got fair use. So in the end, I think this will come down to a fight about fair use, whether the use that was made by, say, OpenAI was transformative and therefore it should be allowed. That's going to be the really nice big litigation fight eventually. Yeah, that's what I'm definitely keeping an eye on. And I'm going to come to my final question. This is what I ask everybody. Do you think the AI is going to kill us all? No. <laughs> oh, really only by um, sending us so many adverts that we kill ourselves. Uh, <laughs> I truly think that we're going to have died of climate change before AI kills us. If you look at what current computational intense statistics does, which is essentially what the AI we have right now is, what machine learning is, it's so far from any paradigm that would take us to real thinking, to real cognition, to real human intelligence, as opposed to just this facade, which is what it is. It's a behavioral facade in which it basically swallows huge amounts of what we do and then mines it for patterns to try and do something that looks like what we do. That's my generic understanding of it. And we're just a species that likes to look for stories. We like to look for narratives. So our narrative is we see this happening from the outside and we go, looks like it's talking like a human to me. Maybe it is a human, you know, maybe it'll kill me. Also, why is it always going to kill us? Why isn't it going to sit down and have a pint with us? Yeah, why is it always, you know, murder and death? <laughs> death by paper clips. Never understood any of this, really. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually really reassuring. Uh, Lillian Edwards, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Cool. Thank you for having me. This is part of the Infosys Knowledge Institute's AI podcast series, The AI Interrogator. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts and visit us on infosys.com slash IKI. The podcast was produced by Catherine Burdett, Yulia Dabari and Christine Calhoun, with Dode Bigley as our audio engineer. I'm Kate Bevan of the Infosys Knowledge Institute. Keep learning, keep sharing. <laughs>